0: Uh, there's moments in the Gospels, which are those four biographies of Jesus, there's moments in those stories where if you're actually paying attention and you're reading and you're watching and you're being honest, the feeling you have is that Jesus is doing something wrong. And like, if, you, if you don't feel that way, I'm not sure if you're reading honestly because there's all kinds of things Jesus does that just seem a little off-kilter. And a couple of them have been standing out to me in the most recent season of my life. So let me show you what they are and then let me tell you why they stand out to me. First of all, in Mark's Gospel... Very early on in the story, Jesus begins to develop a big following because he's been doing some really impressive things. Like he's teaching in a way that seems really insightful and authentic, and he's healing people. Like these are people in need of actual healing, and he is actually healing them. And because there's lots of people who need healing, crowds are growing who want him to keep healing them. And so in the middle of all of that, we read this in Mark chapter 1 here on the screen, the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon, Simon's one of his closest followers, and his companions went to look for Jesus, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So Jesus apparently has the ability to heal people and there's people who are in need of healing and they have lined up at the door looking for healing. But in spite of this mountain of need that has gotten stacked up against the door of his house where he's staying, he feels apparently like no obligation to keep showing up for that need, but he's gonna go off to another preaching gig. Does that feel a little weird to anybody else? How about uh, this next story? So in the next story in Luke's gospel, what's going on in this next story is at a time and place where religious figures are often the same thing as judges. And by the way, there are places in the world today where this is still the case, where the cleric or the religious teacher or the rabbi or the imam is also sort of the adjudicator of human affairs. Well, that's the case then. And Jesus has been living his life in such a way that there is a kind of mantle of authority on him meaning that the the crowd, the community around him would trust him to deal with disputes that are happening among the people. And when there are disputes among the people, you need good judges, right? You need like reliable people with integrity to help people sort that out, to mediate. And Jesus has a reputation that makes him worthy of that kind of role. And because of that, we see this in Luke's gospel. Someone in the crowd says to Jesus, hey teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? There's apparently some kind of injustice going on here. I won't bore you with the details of the way that inheritance has worked in the first century, but something's going on here. seems a little bit unfair, and this person is saying, Jesus, you have the sort of communal authority to help us mediate this conflict, and there seems to be a real act of injustice happening here with the inheritance being hoarded. And Jesus essentially says, like, not my problem, and he moves on. And I think the reason that these two examples are standing out to me is an experience that I had uh, roughly a month ago. So let me tell you about the experience, and then I'll bring it back to these texts. So uh, during the month of July, our church's plan is uh, for me to focus my work specifically on like one part of the work that I do on behalf of our community, which has to do with like study and theological reflection and kind of thinking about where we're headed. And like, that's part of the job all year long, but sometimes that work is really hard to do when you only have like an hour for it here or there, and it's really appropriate to have uh, a chunk of time blocked out for just some deep thinking and learning. And by the way, I'm super grateful for that time. And I really wanna call out Ryan Yazel and Angela Logan for teaching us while I was gone. And maybe you guys wanna say thanks to them too for, for teaching us, yeah. But anyway, so like most of the year, you know, there's lots of meetings and other things that are part of the work and then teaching preparation and reading, and there's also lots of meetings. And I mentioned there's lots of meetings the rest of the year. So then I have this, this time carved out during July where there's no sermons and no meetings on my calendar. And, and this thing erupted inside me. It surprised me. I was a couple of weeks into that time, and because things were quieter and I wasn't running on the same kind of adrenaline that I've been running on since the beginning of the pandemic, probably just like you, like like things kind of settled down and this thing erupted inside me. What happened specifically was I got a completely nice, sweet text from a person who's a part of my life who just wanted to like hang out. And it was something like, hey man, been a little while, would love to catch up over a meal or some drinks. It's nice, right? It's nice to be wanted, nice to be connected with. But it was like there was this dragon in a lair inside my heart that came out of its lair and spewed fire And the sentiment that I felt inside me was this screaming, like, leave me alone. I was like, oh, where did that come from? Like, have you had any disproportionate responses in the last 16 months? Have any of you, like, had any kind of errant sort of energies, maybe against your partner, your spouse, your friends, your family? I felt that. Fortunately, I didn't text that, but I felt Felt it and it kept coming up for a couple of weeks. This just really intense sense of like, frankly, like resentment, um, like don't take from me, stop asking for things from me. And what I had to confront was the fact that I think in pandemic life, I had way overextended the ways that I've been trying to show up for other people and care for other people while we all try to hold everything together, right? In fact, I think what had happened is I lost sight of something that I have said on a regular basis, even like from this stage, and the thing that I have said that I actually believe, and the thing that I see Jesus dialed into in Mark and Luke and the stories that I told you is that not every need is a calling. not every need is a calling, right? So, I mean, he's there at the house and there's a mountain of needs stacked at his door. They are pounding down the door trying to get to him, but not every need is a calling. And Jesus seems to know that in ways that I have forgotten. One of the ways I know that not every need is a calling is that the needs are infinite, but we are not. You know that, right? Now, before I go any further into this, let me say something else as clearly as possible. If you are exhausted right now, I don't know, that may not be a sign that you've done anything wrong. It might be a sign that you're showing up in all the ways that you're supposed to show up. I don't know that exhaustion is is necessarily a clear indicator that you've got this right or wrong. But I'll say for me, in the inventory that I did last month, it became really clear that I had lost sight of something really true that I know, which is that not every need is a calling. Um, If you've heard me say this before, you've heard me say it usually in the context of of a mantra that we hold as a community. So Southland City Church has four mantras. These are dialed into the operating system of how we follow Jesus together, how we live out our life together. They're illustrated on the campuses over here on the wall. And from the beginning, these have been guiding principles for us as a church community. We call them mantras, by the way, and not values because I don't know about you, but I've been in organizations that have values. And I feel like they usually just get like slapped on the wall and forgotten about. Uh, But a mantra is a portable prayer that you take with you and you repeat it to yourself on a regular basis for the purpose of your own transformation. That's the definition of a mantra and that's why we have mantras. Portable prayers that we take with us into every part of our lives for the sake of our own transformation. And the mantra that I wanna revisit today is this one, sushi, not fish stew. Uh, If you've heard me teach this before, welcome to the review. Although we are gonna talk about some new application points. But also, it's been since 2019 that we taught these. And if they really are part of the operating system of our church community, we felt like we should return to them, especially knowing that we've got a lot of new faces around here. And you might wonder, what is at the heart of South and City Church? And these four mantras are one of the best ways that I know to help you understand that. So today, I wanna refresh sushi, not fish stew. Uh, early on, when we were getting the church going, we were having multiple court meetings in houses, I would tell a little parable. I would say, imagine uh, that I came to you as a chef, and I said, I have got the most beautiful specimen of tuna from the sea. I mean, I've not seen tuna this good in a really long time. It's perfectly marbled. It's rich. It's flavorful. This is like a once every couple of years tuna that I have found. It is special and precious, and I can't wait to share it with you. You start salivating, you get very excited, and so you wait for me to come back from the kitchen. I go back there, and I do my work, and you hear me banging around for a while with pots and pans. And then after all that work, I come out, and after raving about this specimen of tuna that I'm about to put in front of you, you look down, and what I've actually set in front of you on the table is a big ol' bowl of fish stew. And, And you look at this complex thing in front of you, and you don't even know where the tuna is in the soup, because there's just a bunch of stuff in there, And somehow hidden among all the other things that I have put in there, you assume that maybe there's some tuna there, but it's confusing to you because a minute ago I said, I have something so wonderful and beautiful and precious and rare and I can't wait to share it with you. And now the thing I put in front of you, it seems that the other thing that I was talking about is lost. Somewhere inside all of that complexity that I felt the need to add to this thing that I thought was so beautiful that I couldn't wait to share it. Now, um, this little parable about uh, unnecessary complexity and when the best things get lost in the mix. That parable for me was inspired by a documentary that I watched a few years ago called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Anybody seen this documentary? Yeah, it's, uh, if you're a foodie, if you're into foodie documentaries, it's wonderful. But there are stories and layers to it that have nothing to do with food. Jiro Dreams of Sushi is a documentary about a, su- a sushi chef in Japan named Jiro. Uh, at the time of the filming, I think he was like 80 years old, he might be 90 years old now, but Jiro has been making the same basic sushi in his basement sushi shop, in the basement of a nondescript office building in Japan for years now. And what's funny is like, when you watch the documentary and you see the place where he makes the sushi, it is not impressive looking. It's like down the stairs and in a hallway with like drop ceiling, t- tile ceiling and fluorescent lights in the hallway and then a very kind of average looking sushi shop. And when you just see the outside of it, you might be thinking to yourself, I bet the Martin Sushi competes cuz by the way, Martin Sushi not bad around here, right? But it turns out that Jiro for decades now has been making what is known as the world's absolute best sushi. Jiro in this nondescript, very unimpressive looking sushi shop has won Michelin three stars, year after year after year after year. And if you know anything about food, when Michelin gives a restaurant three stars, they're saying in their strange way, they think it's worth hopping an international flight just to have this meal, which by the way, will cost you hundreds and hundreds of dollars per person. These are like the peak apex foodie experiences in the world. And Jiro with his nondescript little sushi shop has won Michelin three stars over and over again to the point that heads of state have been said to actually come to Japan just to sit there and eat his sushi. And so like I'm watching the film and I'm enamored with the craft, and I'm enamored with the discipline that they put into it. By the way, just to make the rice at Jiro's sushi shop, just, just the white rice that they put a the little bit of raw fish on top of, right? Just to make the rice, you have to apprentice for 10 years. So here's, here's the thing, all of that effort, all of that work And at the end, like, you go into a shop, you pay hundreds of dollars, and Jiro puts a sushi roll in front of you. Jiro puts a sushi roll in front of you, and apparently he looks at you very awkwardly while you eat it. And you might think, like, how does all that add up to three stars on Michelin and heads of state traveling from around the world? But one of the commentators in the film has this quote, and, and this is the quote that knocked me over and grabbed my heart. The commentator says that people will come from all over the world to eat Jiro's sushi, and they will ask, How can something so simple taste so deep? That was the thing that knocked me over. How can something so simple taste so deep? And when we were thinking about church, the thought was like, could they say that about about what happens in our midst as a church community? Could it it be both simple and full of depth? Um, And when I think about our, our lives, that are just like endlessly scattered and fragmented and frenetic and like could that be said of a life that it was both simple and deep that it had such a singularity of purpose and a clarity of vision that they weren't allowing themselves to be dragged in a million directions that weren't actually the places where they would live their best and give their best to the world could that be said about a life Uh, it strikes me that Jiro probably had to face some questions, and disabuse himself of some of the myths that drive the modern world. Like one of the myths that I think drives the modern world is we assume that whatever you have like on your hands, whatever assets you have, whatever resources, we assume that the best you can do with it is the same as the most that you can do with it. Like I think this is just like hardwired into the modern psyche that better and more are the same thing. But he doesn't seem to think that. I mean, you can imagine your Jiro, and you've got presidents and, and kings and queens literally flying to Japan to eat your sushi, and you've got people whispering in your ears saying, Man, we could franchise this thing. You got a brand, baby. Let's maximize this thing, right? Let's get Jiro's sushi shops all over the world. You're going to make a lot more money. Let's come up with the grocery store version. Let's like have every Trader Joe's with some Jiro sushi in the freezer section that you can like take home and thaw out. I don't know. Like, you know that those temptations have come along though, that we're all built on the same premise that more and better are the same thing. But Jiro seems to believe that in the case of what he is here for and what he's called to, more and better are not the same thing. And better has meant showing up with the same discipline and passion with singularity of purpose over the few things that he is actually here to do. Now, it can be a, a little cheesy or a little tricky to like draw too many spiritual metaphors from a foodie documentary, but I am prone to do it, so stick with me a little bit longer. Um, back to those texts with Jesus where these needs stack up at his door, and he seems quite free to say, no, that's not actually what I'm here for. I have come to believe that the, the reason that Jesus was able to live with such singularity of purpose and was able to give himself so compellingly to the world was that he had had the temptations that drag all of us into unnecessary complexity, that he had had those temptations dismantled. And a particular experience that we read about in the gospels is sometimes called the temptation of Jesus. And I wanna offer you a certain interpretation of what happens in that moment, because I actually think it connects to the way that Jesus lived the rest of his life. So uh, in Matthew's gospel, for example, the sequence of events is that once we meet the adult Jesus after he's been born, and we kind of fast forward to the adult Jesus. First, he gets baptized, and then as soon as he is baptized, having heard God say, "This is my son whom I love," having had his belovedness called out, he then goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. And this temptation story—it's kind of weird. It feels kind of mythic. It's—it's—it's it's, it's kind of bizarre. Sounds almost like a fable of sorts, but I think the point of stories like that is we can find ourselves in stories like that. And so let's talk about what happens to Jesus and see if we can find ourselves there. Jesus is out there fasting for 40 days and nights. And then after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible has my favorite understatement. It says he was hungry. (laughs) Duh. So the tempter comes to him and says, hey, if you're hungry, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And we could ask all day long, like, well, why is that a temptation towards sin? Would it be wrong for him to do that? But Jesus says, no. And then the next thing that the tempter does, Satan then brings Jesus to the temple there in Jerusalem. Now, the temple area in Jerusalem for the Israelite people is the religious epicenter of reality it is the cultural epicenter of reality it's also like the governmental power epicenter of reality so if you could imagine taking like i don't know rome and the vatican and washington dc and hollywood stacking them on top of each other you have all those dynamics at play there on the temple mount and jesus is brought to like the, the roof the peak of the temple where everybody is there everybody who matters is there this is where things that matter happen and the tempter says i want you to throw yourself off the roof and surely god the father will send angels to keep you from from landing on the ground and you'll be safe and fine and everybody Everybody will see this thing happening in front of all of them, but Jesus says no. And then the third temptation is Jesus has shown all of the kingdoms of the world, and the tempter says, "If you bow down to me, I'll give you all of this." And Jesus says no. Well, in the last case, it seems like we can probably surmise the idea that it's not good to bow down to Satan, so maybe it's clear why that's a temptation. But in general, like we can keep asking, what is it about these things that are temptations that would take him off track, that would lead him to not be who he's here to be in the world, and um, to work out a connection to those temptations. I want to draw now on a, a priest and a theologian named Henry Nouwen. And Nouwen has a way of interpreting these. So let me show you what Nouwen does with these three temptations. He says that when, when the tempter comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread, Nouwen says this is the temptation for Jesus to make himself relevant in the world, to make himself useful. There is hunger at this moment in the story, right? Aching, craving hunger. And it seems it would be nice to be useful in the face of that need, to make himself relevant to all of that. Now, for all of us in the room, I don't know which of us relate to the idea of wanting to make ourselves relevant. How about this word for us? Which of us in the room today are the helpers? <laughs> right? That's, got, that's gotten a response in every gathering. Some, some of us from early in life have learned to show up as helpers because that's how we know that we matter. Or that's how we make ourselves safe. That's that's how our presence is felt in the world. And helping is beautiful. And yet, a lot of us have allowed ourselves over the years to sort of get programmed, to kind of get cultivated to the point that we are sort of compulsive in that need, to make ourselves helpful in situations. So any room you walk into, any situation, you're kind of scanning the room for, for a need so that you can show up for it. And again, it's beautiful to respond to need. But what happens when that beautiful response becomes a compulsion, right? Becomes sort of a reaction, becomes an instinct that, that, that all of a sudden, wherever there is need, we move toward it without the chance to second-guess whether that's actually the need that we are here to meet. The second temptation, one says that when the tempter comes to Jesus and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple in front of all these people, one says this is the temptation to be spectacular, to put on a show, now, I don't, I don't know if spectacular is a word that any of us relate to, but how about this? Which of us in the room are the performers? Which of us in the room are here hoping that the world around us will see our uniqueness? Because it's in our uniqueness that we feel a contribution to the world. Yeah? Anybody relate to that? that um, it's beautiful, by the way, to bring your uniqueness to the world. It's like wonderful. Like one of the sort of stereotypical ways that people show up like this is the artist of the world, right? And yet, what, what happens when that becomes a compulsion? A fixation, a, an instinct that we can't even second guess. And so we move toward it without even thinking about it. Well, if that's the case, like it's gonna be really hard to stay the straight and narrow when the thing that we're actually here for doesn't need that from us right now. How about this one? Now one says that the the temptation when when Satan comes and says if you're the son of God, bow down to me and receive the kingdoms of the world. He says that's the temptation for Jesus to make himself powerful. And I don't know about how you interpret Jesus or how you read Jesus, but my reading of Jesus's disposition in the Bible is that he wasn't necessarily like tempted the way a megalomaniac is is tempted. That he wasn't necessarily tempted um, by the way that the ego is tempted here. My suspicion, Is that if jesus is tempted at all with this particular invitation from satan it's because jesus might say to himself well if all of the kingdoms reported to me right now i could fix everything for everyone right wouldn't that be great no more war no more violence no more people robbing one another he says this is the temptation to be powerful but how about this which of us in the room who of us in the room feel the need to show up as the protector And so we've figured out how to make ourselves strong or how to make our presence strong in the world, but we do it to protect others. And so we know that there are vulnerabilities in the world and there are vulnerable people in the world. And over time, over the years, we have learned how to show up strong in a way that can be really beautiful and really redemptive and important on behalf of other people. But when it becomes a compulsion, When it becomes a reaction when it becomes a sort of unexamined instinct to always show up that way we're going to have a really hard time differentiating between needs and callings right because don't you know that everywhere in the world there are always vulnerabilities and vulnerable people and if every one of those situations calls this protector out of us i don't know that our story would be written the way that jesus's was it wouldn't be so then you know, Jay realized there was more need there, but he kept going in the direction he was called toward because he knew what he was called toward. The story would be then Jay never left the house and he just kept doing the things that people were asking Jay to do and then he wondered why his life like, got so fragmented and split apart that he stopped giving the good gifts that he was here to give the world. And you could swap out your name for mine, I bet. I, I really have come to believe that this tempting experience for Jesus in the wilderness, that like one of, one of the ways it worked on him was that it was a dismantling of those compulsions and impulses that we all grow up into because life does that to us. And that s- somehow he came out of that experience liberated from those things and able to say yes to the few things that he was actually here for and no to everything else. Like I, I actually think this is how we make sushi and not fish stew. <laughs> this is how we maintain purposeful simplicity rather than unexamined complexity in our lives, and especially right now as we are, when I, when I like put together this teaching, I, I was saying when, as we're coming out of COVID, it sucks that I don't know if we're coming out of COVID or not right now, right, the Delta variant and all this stuff, I don't know, whatever, wherever we are, whatever this moment is, we have all that behind us and all that disruption behind us, and there might be more disruption in front of us, but we have some choices that we get to make about how we are going to put our lives together and which things we are going to add back in. And like my hope right now in this moment for all of us is that we like we take the mantra with us and we ask where has life become fish stew and where can we make it sushi again? When can it go from mindless complexity to purposeful simplicity again based on knowing who we are and what we're here for? So like I wonder like which of us in the room today, like how many of us could actually answer like, what's the unique good that you are here to do? Not anyone else but you. Like, what's the peculiar way that God's image wants to be expressed in your life? Or how about this? If you believed in your own belovedness as much as Jesus trusts his belovedness, if you believe that you have nothing to prove as much as Jesus seems to know that he has nothing to prove, like, if you you were able to really lay hold of that, what would you stop doing and what would you start doing? And I suspect that if we could sit with that inventory, with that examination for a moment, we would discover that much of what has filled our lives and made them unbearably complex has come from the compulsions and the impulses and the fixations that we have when we forget that we have nothing to prove and we don't have to show up in any certain way to live in that love. Maybe right now we're going through our own sort of temptation in the wilderness and we are hearing these whispers, you know, If you were a good person, if you really belonged to God, you would show up in all of these ways for all of these things. And maybe to follow Jesus through that temptation moment is to have the same singleness of purpose that he had to say, like, I'm not going to go where that compulsion takes me. I'm going to trust that I don't have to perform that for the world to be okay. Um, This is also a word, though, for like us as a family, as a community, right, like for our church. And so I thought it would be helpful to just like unpack with you very briefly a little bit of how this mantra has been a part of like how we've navigated COVID life. This is not meant to be triumphalistic, like, hey, look how we did it so well. But I do think it's instructive and I think it's a point of accountability for us to talk together about how we've tried to live that out. And for some of you who've been maybe with us through the journey since COVID started, you might have wondered about some of the decisions that we've made. So I just thought I would really quickly unpack a little bit of that for you as an example. So let's go back uh, to last March. And I don't know about you, but I remember it was like, oh, COVID's this thing over here and it might come. No, it's definitely coming. Okay, it might might interrupt for a minute. Oh, it's here and nothing's ever going to be the same again. And we don't know when it's going to end. And I don't know about you, but that evolution happened in about 48 hours, I think, for me. (laughs) You know, like like general awareness and then like practical awareness and then like a confrontation with what this would really be. And I I can't even speak for the whole team, but I can speak for me and say, I felt all of these compulsions and fears and temptations about like what to do with that moment, right? Um, A lot of churches, like the next move that they made was to take the thing that happens on Sunday morning, just take that whole entire thing, right, and put it online. Now, please hear me. Whenever I differentiate, it's not necessarily critique. Right? I, have, I have no way of knowing if that was the right or the wrong move for other church communities, right? But if you were with us through that, you know that we didn't do that. Well, one of the reasons we didn't do that is we didn't know how to. We didn't own a camera in March of last year. Like, we didn't have any of that infrastructure built out. So part of it was like, before COVID hit, We had said, for us, the sushi is this actual flesh and blood gathering, this actual connection that we have here together in the room so that we can do things like the open floor, so that we can literally sing to one another, so that we can see each other in our worship. So before COVID hit, the sushi for us was this actual flesh and blood gathering. And we had felt that for South Bend City Church, a massive online digital content presence was kind of like fish stew for, for who we felt called to be. And then COVID hits, and we lose this physical flesh and blood gathering. But even if we had had the gear and knew what to do, I don't think we would have like flipped a switch and just tried to make Sunday mornings happen online in the exact same form because I I don't know that that's what that moment called for. And by the way, like we all got out last year, but man, some of my friends who got the most burnout were pastors and churches who felt like they had to take everything that had been happening the day before COVID and just put it online. That is exhausting. And it tends to have diminishing returns from what we can tell over the past like 16 months. Uh, we did end up buying a camera, a camera. We now own a camera, big time for and City Church. Um, and then you might have noticed that like our online content it was kind of slow and we kind of grew it out over time, right? Uh, teaching films were something that we knew that we could do in uh, an excellent way right away because one person talking to a camera is almost infinitely less complex than making beautiful film with a full band. Um, I've been in production for a long time. It's just infinitely less complex. When it came time to like say, hey, we, we want to take the art and the music and the heartbeat of this church that is more than a talking heading and, and put it on video, we, we thought, well, let's, let's take a minute and figure out what does that look like to do it the way that we would want to do it, right? Like in a way that really holds up the, the few precious things that we have and believe in. And um, and now it does sound a little triumphalistic, I suppose. I'm I'm really proud of the films that a whole bunch of people worked on, like Christmas and Easter. But if you watch those, you know that we didn't just try to take a service and put it on video. We thought about, well, you know, maybe the reading doesn't need to happen on the stage. Maybe the reading should happen on the roof of the Morris downtown, right? Or um, maybe because we have this moment in time, we should take the camera into the homes of uh, the everyday lives of our people, because that's where we really believe God is at work as much as we believe God is at work here in the room. So let's Seize the moment and do it like that. Now, whether you liked all that or not, or whether you connected to it all or not, and whether it was the right decision or not, I don't know. But I want you to understand that, like, that whole approach had a lot to do with us trying to resist those instincts and impulses and reactions, where before you even think about it, you just run as fast as you can to try to show up and be relevant and make stuff because you're afraid of. We don't do that, we're going to lose people, or like the church is not going to exist at the end of COVID. Like, like you want to, like, you want to stifle some of those fear impulses so that you can make wiser, better decisions. And we tried to do that through COVID. Again, I'm not saying we did it perfectly, but if you've been wondering why we did what we did, uh, this is a big part of that. While we're talking about it, um, I do wanna like have a moment of of pastor's prerogative here. Uh, During the the stretch of COVID, um, we flourished in a lot of ways as a community, thanks to the unbelievable efforts of so many people. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Uh, yeah, the last, um, the entire era of COVID has just humbled me at people's faithfulness and generosity and willingness to show up for one another in incredible ways. And so in so many ways, um, Southland City Church has built my faith over this last era, and I'm really grateful for that. And one of the unique contributions I wanted to call out, just, just because um, somebody gave a lot through all of it. And now we're making a sort of strategic pivot that's not gonna require that as much from them. Uh, I don't think I'll point him out because that will make him feel awkward, but Jake's in the room. Jake Titus made every one of our teaching films for the past year without getting paid for any of it. He just donated all that time. And you can clap for him, he's right over there. Uh, yeah. uh, Jake and I went on a walk one day and I was like, hey, you wanna make some video? And he was like yeah i think i do and little did he know he was committing like a half day of his life for the next year uh, to show up and do that for us so anyway that's one example of the ways that so many have shown up and i did want to say thanks uh let me go a little further on what sushi means for southland city church going forward and in some ways this is us kind of reiterating a structure that we landed on a while ago again if this is not new to you just be thankful that newcomers are not on the outside wondering but they're being brought in right and if this is new to you I just feel like you probably wanna know how we build things and why we build that way. So when it came to the whole life of Southland City Church before COVID and now as we are wherever we are with COVID, we wanted to have a a really simple structure to talk about how we live our life together. And some of that was because some of the trauma that I have from working in church my entire adult life. And you might have trauma from going to church some of your life, right? Like the, the church I used to work at, there was a moment in a lead team meeting where one of the team members was proposing a new initiative or like a ministry program, right? And so we were about to launch this thing for the church. And we had decided as a team, we think this thing is so important that everybody needs to be in on it. We, how, how do we look, make sure that everybody in this church family knows that like, if you wanna be a faithful member of our church, if you wanna show up the way that we are asking you to show up, you will be a part of this thing. So you, it's like an all scape. And the thing about it is, frankly, that thing I was a part of, we were pretty good at getting people to do stuff. Like, we had some pretty compelling levers. We knew how to make it sexy and and feel important. And so we were going to, like, pull all those levers to get everybody to jump in on the one big thing that we said was the most important thing until somebody in the room had the intelligence to call a timeout, and they asked, and they said, hey, can anyone, like, remember how many different things we have done that with in the past couple of years? Like, if somebody's been coming to this church every week and hearing everything we say... And Every time we have said you need to be a part of this. This is an all-skate. Everybody jump in on this Can we just tally up all of the things that we've said that about and consider the kind of burden that we were putting on people and we thought about it? And it was overwhelming Because if you strung together the messages that you had heard from that community from its leaders over the previous couple of years Here is a rough summary of what you would have heard You would have heard us say Man, we gotta gather. Do not neglect getting together. Like, being together in worship is essential for following Jesus. We have to do this together. So make sure you come to the weekend service every week. But by the way, make sure you bring a friend to the weekend service, because the weekend service is actually very evangelistic and outreach-driven. And if you're not bringing a friend to it, you're not taking advantage of the very reason that we build this thing, because it's not really about you. It's about the people who aren't here yet. So make sure you bring a friend to the weekend service. But because the weekend service is evangelistic and outreach-driven, it's not really the place where we go deep. So make sure you come to the midweek service, which is different with the Bible study, and the in-depth stuff for the believers, but also we need volunteers to make all of this stuff happen, right? So on the weekend, for example, you might want to volunteer in service for one of the kids' ministry hours, but then you got to come back on Sunday for the service that you can attend the service that you can bring a friend, and then on Thursday nights, make sure that you're volunteering on Thursdays and not just attending on Thursdays. But by the way, the real life of faith doesn't happen in the big room. We all know that, right? The real life of faith happens in intimate Christian communities, so make sure that you join a small group. But by the way, we want to make sure that your small group is running the right program, so your small group leader needs to be at training twice a month on top of the four times a month that you're your small group leader needs to meet with his actual small group but you've got kids right and they're growing up and they need to know about God so make sure you bring them to the youth programs that are happening on Sunday nights but we need volunteers for the youth programs too so make sure you're a part of that but also let's not be one of those insular communities that only shows up for our own programs so let's make sure you're all going downtown to show up at the community center to serve at least once a month and by the time we added it all up it's like if you were actually doing all the things that we said that you should do you were putting in like nine days a week This happens, and it wasn't because we were bad people, it's because it always happens unless you resist it, right? I mean, like, every one of those things I just mentioned, there there was a heart within it that was good, there were reasons that those things were good things for people to be a part of, and yet, not every need is a calling, not every opportunity is a calling, not every possibility is a calling, and we don't want to fall prey to that as a church community, like these things will always trend toward unnecessary complexity unless we do like the difficult work of like Jesus in the wilderness dismantling those compulsions and temptations and sticking with the few things that he knew he was here for and, and that we know that we are here for so in, in, in the life of Southland City Church from the beginning and now this has meant three things for us really and by the way, there's nothing sacred about this list of three things, and there might be a season in the future where this list changes and that's a different set of things, but we wanna be really clear on like what are the few things that we do. So we do gatherings, and, and we really believe that the simplicity of what happens here can be a gateway into depth. A couple of examples for that, for me, are like the open floor. The open floor is often a time where we throw a prompt out to the room and let anybody speak here always, always scares the crap out of me, just a little bit, and it's almost always amazing. And it's not highly programmed, right? We, we literally just say, huh, well, we believe in the life of God in the people. So let's check in on that. And I'm often amazed at the power of what is spoken and what is given to this community when we do that. Uh, another example for me on gatherings is what we call the Eucharist, or communion, that we do on a regular basis. On one level, it's so simple, right? It's bread and a cup of grape juice. <laughs> it's gluten-free, dairy-free, not free egg-free bread, but it's <laughs> bread and a cup of grape juice. And yet, there are stories in this community, and there have been stories told for 2,000 years of the way that that simple meal was a gateway into depth of encounter with Christ, of encounter with belovedness. You know, I mean, when one human being looks another human being in the eye, holds up a sacramental element and says, God has allowed God's body to be broken on your behalf because you are so welcome and beloved at this table. That even the things that you yourself have done to break God's body are not enough to alienate you from this table. I mean, that's depth like all the way down, right? But it's not complex. Uh, Tables, tables I already talked about earlier. tables are another way that we really are trying to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to like trusting simplicity if you've been a part of a table you know that there's not a lot of programming at the table we look at jesus's table fellowship in the new testament and we see the power of him sitting with sisters and brothers and sharing a meal and asking them some some heartfelt questions and we see how transformative that was then and we've seen how transformative it is here and so uh like yeah tables are like, there's, there's no, like, hidden agenda there that we're not telling you about until you come to the meeting next week. It's like, no, it really is what it sounds like, and yet we've seen some really beautiful things happen there. And then streets. Streets are all the ways that we meet our neighbors on common ground for the common good. And at least a couple of the ways that sushi, this mantra, shows up in streets are, first of all, we're not trying to reinvent everything. If you look at the kind of, like, programmatic level stuff that we do as a church around streets, the vast majority of it is trying to like tap into existing partnerships and opportunities with people who are already doing good work in the world. Because we don't need a South and City Church program for everything to, to be good in the world, right? Like we can find the best people doing the best work in, here, in our city and then we can ask how we could be a part of it. And that's another way to not just stack program on top of program on top of program and recreate the wheel over and over and over again. And another way that our streets strategy reflects this sushi thing is the very teaching that Ryan and Angela offered us last month about around like a grassroots ethos, which is to say that like you don't need a program to love your neighbor. I mean, programs are really good and important in some ways, but you don't need a program to love your neighbor. Most of us more than anything, just need to like wake up and realize that we already have opportunity to love our neighbor if we would just like watch and listen and see where love is calling us to arrive, right? Now, one other note um, kind of operationally here and then we'll wrap it up, okay? This is not meant to be restrictive though. And this is one of the things that we need to kind of keep reiterating here as a church community. So the fact that like our staffing and our, like, our website and our leadership and our programs are committed to this simplicity, it's not meant to say that this church can't do other things. It's meant to say that we don't think the staff should be driving a bunch of other things. This is not meant to be a bottleneck. This is meant to be more empowering because the less that we do top down, hopefully the more freedom there is to do things at every level. Does that make sense? So one of the best examples of how we think about this is the Facebook collective. Uh, some of you might know about the collective, some of you don't. So like we're really committed to like anybody in this church who wants to do anything and invite other people to do it, as long as it's not like awful, like do it, right? I mean, there are some things that like, if you were like, hey, I'm, I'm going to this very hateful gathering of people who are very angry, we might say, well, uh, maybe that's not like ho- totally aligned here, right? But in general, like, like if, it's, if it's neutral or positive and you want to do it, do it, and then invite other people to do it. And the Facebook Collective is a place where you, 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 you are empowered to use the wonders of the internet to let everybody at Southland City Church know what you're up to, and we will freely allow that message to go out so that others can be a part of it. On the collective, there have been examples that range from everything like, hey, I'm, I'm going to the South Bend Cubs game. It's I uh, I don't know, it's cheap hot dog night. Anybody want to come? Wonderful, put it on the collective. We love that. Or it's, um, hey, I'm, I'm going to read this book for the next six weeks, and I'm going to post up at the Brew Works every Wednesday at 6 p.m. to talk about it. Anybody want to read it with me and come along? Or um, it's, hey, I volunteer with this really, really beautiful and important cause, Uh, right here in the city, and maybe some of you would like to volunteer, but you wouldn't want to volunteer alone. Well, the good news is I'm already going to be there and doing it, so why don't you join me in it? Not bad, right? Uh, The collective is a really important part of the strategy, because we don't want our simplicity to become, like, restrictive, right? We really want it to be liberating and empowering, and we don't want the members of the church community to, like, have to go through the staffing structure, because that gets really cumbersome, to create the things that you feel called to create that you wanna share with your sisters and brothers right here in this church. So uh, if you're looking at gatherings and tables and streets and you feel like the thing that is stirring in you is not represented there, that's exactly what the Facebook Collective is for. Make sense? Okay, cool, tactics over. Uh, Let me bring it back to um, the big idea and let me just say this. Um, I have found that every time I renew my commitment to this mantra personally, every time I renew my commitment to it, it's really hard work. It seems like it's an almost relentless battle to, to stay true in, in the way that I see Jesus staying true. Because in one way or another, the crowd with its need shows up for all of us. One way or another, we're going to keep bumping into environments that that tap into those compulsions that we feel to be helpful or to perform or to be powerful on behalf of others. And of course, the problem is sometimes those needs will be callings. Sometimes you're going to walk into a room and sense that this room needs a helper, and that will absolutely be the thing that you should say yes to. And sometimes you walk into a room and sense that that room needs your uniqueness and that will absolutely be the thing that you should say yes to. And sometimes you will walk into a room and sense that this room needs somebody to use their power to protect people and that will absolutely be the thing that you should say yes to, but not always. And I have felt over and over again that there's this kind of relentless current that keeps trying to drag me away from the few things that I'm absolutely here to do. And that can feel a little bit defeating Except there's another feature in the story of Jesus in these temptations that encourages me, and it's not just in the text, but I've felt it in my life over and over again. This is in Matthew chapter four. So this is right at the turning point after Jesus' baptism, before his temptation, where we read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now that's peculiar. The wilderness is the place where the devil's going to like dance with him, right? But it says the Spirit let Jesus into this experience. And if the wilderness is the place where Jesus is being liberated from the compulsions that would lead him to live a life where he loses the sense of what he's actually here for, then the wilderness is a sacred place and the Spirit wants him there to do that work. And I know that like around you there are pressures pushing and there are currents swirling that are gonna drag you toward Endless distraction and complexity. I know that's true, but there's another current flowing in the world. There's, there's another um, presence with us that we call the spirit. And the spirit is not often loud or dramatic. And yet, like I really believe that anytime any human being says, I want to live the kind of life I would live if it if it were completely rooted in my belovedness with God, where I have nothing to prove. That anytime anybody takes a step in that direction, there, there might be currents pushing you away, but there's a spirit like walking with you, whispering to you, supporting you, cheering for you, enabling you, empowering you. Because I don't think God wants us to live lives where our best and truest selves get lost in the mix. Um, modern life is inherently hectic and complex. I don't mean to suggest that we could just like have more faith and all of a sudden be immune to all of that. I get it. If you have kids in sports programs, you are exempt from everything I just said, by the way. <laughs> I don't know how parents manage that. Um, this is not a diatribe against being busy or hectic. It's a big part of life, right? It is a calling, though, to, to live the one life that each of us is actually here for, rooted in belovedness, not compulsion, with nothing to prove. And it's a calling for Southland City Church as a family to live up to sushi, not fish stew, in the season ahead. Sound good? If you're able, will you stand to your feet? So may you hear the voice of love that has claimed you and called you a beloved daughter or son. May you know that that voice needs you not to prove anything, but delights when you show up the way that that voice has made you to be. May you allow the Spirit to work with you, dismantling the compulsions that lead us to distraction. May you remember that not every need is a calling. May you hear the calling on your one beautiful, worthwhile life. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.